Welcome to Hunting Influence, a podcast by Influence Hunter. We share stories from those that have it and those that leverage it to help you develop what we believe could be the most important skill in business right now, influence. I'm your host, Aaron Kostinets. I'm here today with entrepreneur Nick Hamburger. Nick is the founder and CEO of Quavos, the world's first chip made completely out of egg whites. Quavos is high in protein, high in fiber, low in net carbs, and absolutely delicious. Uh, Nick first founded Quavos while he was a university student, and they are now sold nationwide in stores like Vitamin Shop and Whole Foods. Nick and his partner, Zach, were recently featured on Shark Tank, where they got a deal with Guest Shark and the founder of Kind, Daniel Lubitsky. Most importantly, Nick, like myself, is a Cubs fan. Nick, thanks for uh, coming on today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Aaron. And, and yes, you did call out the most important piece, the uh, loyalty to the Cubs, for sure. Exactly. That's, uh, you know, that's why we got along when we first met, um, I think. But I, wanna, I want you to take me back here. Uh, I want to go back to kind of the, the early days of Nick. I know you're still uh, young right now. Um, and I want to hear, how did you get started on your entrepreneurial journey? What was kind of your uh, first dip into the world of entrepreneurism? Yeah, um, that's a great question. And so, uh, Zach, who's my co-founder on Quavos, uh, and I go way back and we had had business ideas since we were 12 years old. Um, when we were in middle school, we sold these premium Japanese sodas called Ramune, which are like glass bottles that open in a very cool way where, where you kind of like punch down a marble and then it, it, it opens the bottle. So we were selling these like high end sodas in our middle school cafeteria um, and actually made pretty good money. And so that was our first business. And then throughout high school, we did stock simulations and Zach had a few different ventures. And so we were always kind of itching to start a business and start one together. And Quavos was the first, I guess, legitimate, uh, enterprise, which we started in our second year of college. So tell me more about this Japanese soda. What, how much were you guys selling for? Were you, were you able to get real, real traction there? <laughs> um, you know, we, we were selling each bottle for like two fifty, um, and we were buying them for a dollar 25. So nice 50% profit margin. And the, the you know, the dish, the transportation cost was free. Cause we would just like take them from the grocery store <laughs> to school. Um, and, uh, we probably each sold a couple hundred bottles. Like we would do like five to 10 a day, but then the school administration shut us down. Cause you're apparently, not allowed to uh, just sell things, um, you know, covertly to other students in in the school. So that was disappointing, but but it was definitely a great experience. Yeah, that's that's pretty crazy. That's that's good money for you know a little kid making making a couple couple hundred dollars off of it. I feel like the the school should have been proud of the entrepreneurial spirit you guys had. Yeah, yeah, I know, um, but uh, I guess school rules are are school rules, and I. I Afterwards, we uh, I did a bake sale with like uh, my eighth grade class, and we made a lot of money there. But it was um, you know for the school, but so you know was able to sell other things in in legal ways uh, afterwards. So, so would you say then that you knew uh, growing up that that being an entrepreneur was was what you wanted to do with your life, or did you just kind of like having these side hustles, but still weren't completely sure where you wanted? Yeah. Um, I think I was definitely really interested in entrepreneurship growing up. And then my interest definitely changed a little bit at college. But then when Zach had this 
um, idea and, and we knew we could enter the, the Chicago business contest, it kind of like reinvigorated, um, that passion that, that we had both always had. So tell me, tell me about that business contest. Was that, was that kind of, uh, the birth of Quavos there? Um, yeah, you know, we had, he had told me about this idea and we had made some test batches a couple years previously, but, um, then we heard about this business contest at UChicago and we were like, Hey, we should take those healthy egg chips, you know, to this contest and see what happens. And so we entered it and we got in and it was like a 10 week, uh, course that culminated in a pitch contest. And we ended up getting really obsessed with building the business as we took the course and then we won the pitch contest at the end. And it just kind of really, uh, got us obsessed and, and committed to, to working on it. So was, um, Quavos made specifically for this business contest or did you have Quavos before? It was like, I'm, I'm a little confused as to, uh, you know, when was the actual origin of the company? Yeah. So the origin was like right after high school, we had started making test batches and then we just did it. It was like this thing that was in our back pocket of like, we said, Oh, maybe when we graduate, instead of getting a job, we'll launch this product for a year and see where it goes. So it had been in our back pocket, but then when we saw the business contest, we're like, all right, this is an opportunity to actually see like how legit this is. Got it. And was, you know, after you won that business contest, is that when you were like, okay, we really have something here. Like, like we really need to commit ourselves to this. Yeah. Um, I'm always interested in the scenario of like, if we hadn't won or, you know, gotten top three, like what we still have gone on. And I think we would have, but in the process of that 10 week course, I certainly got really, really obsessed um, with the business. And then once we won and got that validation, I think it just made it feel like a no brainer to kind of keep going. So what were the next steps from there? You win this business contest, it validates uh, your idea and hard work. Um, what, what year were you in? And, and then what, what did that kind of look like right after that? Yeah. So that was in sophomore year and we won in March of 2018 and then was in school for another couple year, a couple months until the summer and working on the business, like probably six hours a day. And then like we were kind of doing R and D for that whole spring and summer, trying to improve the product. Um, and we also got into Kraft Heinz's incubator program for the summer of 2018. So they helped us a lot with, um, our strategy and, and they gave us some funding and, um, that, that was very, very helpful. So, during that summer, like Zach and I both knew that this is getting serious enough that we should leave school. And so that's when basically from that time until now, I have not gone back to college. I'm now on my third year, uh, kind of dropped out. And, um, yeah, I mean, shortly after that, uh, summer with the craft program, we ended up launching, um, in stores for the first time. Super cool. And and before we get to, to you dropping out, I'd love to kind of know, uh, what's it like being a student entrepreneur? So having all the, all your courses and then going and also having this business that you're running on the side, is it tough to balance? Yeah, I found it incredibly difficult to balance. Um, I had a light course load for those like six months that I was doing both, thankfully. But it got to a point where I was doing my emails for Quavos in a lot of my courses. And, um, you know, for some people they don't mind and they just work like 12, 14 hour days total. And, and that's cool with them. But for me, I usually liked school and especially like courses for philosophy, which was my major. So once I started to lose passion for the classes, it was a sign to me of like, I don't want to half-ass my education. Um, 
So I kind of knew I needed to pick one or the other. And the business was definitely, you know, calling to me a lot more at that time. And was that, was that a tough discussion to have with your parents? You know, like I'm, I'm dropping out of college to start this business that while I'm confident and you never really know what's going to happen and, you know, kind of throw away the backup plan. Was, was that a tough conversation to have? It's funny because it was remarkably easy. Um, like my parents were pretty much on board from the get-go and didn't take much convincing. I think, you know, they've always been very supportive of me, but also my dad has been in business, you know, his whole career for over 30 years. So like, um, and he's been a CEO the last 20 years. So uh, he'd be the last person to discourage me from, from running a company. Got it. So it kind of, uh, you grew up around that, um, that life a bit and your parents were always wanting you to do it. Well, you're, you're lucky you had such supportive parents there. Cause I think it would have been a lot of pressure for most, most kids to finish university. Um, so afterwards, do you, do you remember uh, the first kind of store that you, you guys got into there? Yeah. Um, well, so we did get into one store during the business contest, which was like a little bit of a hack. Like we just asked this local store if we could do a, a quick pop-up sale. And like, um, so we went there, we, we set up a table and we sold like 20 bags, which was all we had made. And so then we could go into the business contest and say, we sold out, you know, in our first ever pop-up sale. So like <laughs> we did do that. <laughs> um, but, uh, then we took a pause and we just did R and D for like seven more months. And then we launched in about 12 stores around Chicago as a test market to mostly get feedback on our price, our packaging, our product. And, uh, we also launched online on Shopify. And so, um, use the, those, it was like about five months to really market test and get as much feedback as we could. So in that time period, in like the early days at Quavos, what were you guys doing to really grow your brand? What, what were you doing to, to go to stores? What were you doing to try and get people to the Shopify store? Like how did that work? Yeah. Um, you know, we weren't trying to grow that hard for the market tests. It was more about uh, learning as much as we could. So we did do a little bit of influencer posting, um, sending a, a little bit of product out, but you know, mostly we're just trying to, um, uh, send out surveys to people who bought online, go to our stores and do product demos and hear from people about what they liked and what they didn't. And then also analyze the data at the stores and see, um, you know, how well is it selling? Does it seem like the price is, is, is too high? Does it seem like the bag is the right size? And, you know, from all of that, we ended up learning, so much that like, you know, that went into the final product that we ended up launching like for real on Kickstarter. Um, so I'm really glad we kind of didn't push the pace that much and just focused on, uh, learning. And the other thing we did during that market test was we raised our first round of funding. So we kind of, we were getting everything ready to be well-funded and ready, fully ready on the product standpoint to, to kind of move faster. Uh, would you say, the, uh, could you tell me any of those learnings maybe that you uh, found over that time period that you were able to utilize? Yeah, um, there were a lot. So first was very obvious. We, we were selling a one and a half ounce bag, three ninety nine, and there was no need to be one and a half. It was like, you know, a normal single serving small bag is one ounce. So Later, we brought the bag down to one ounce and we could bring the price down below three bucks. And so the price was much more approachable and the serving was, you know, 
just as appropriate. One and a half ounces is like a little extra product, but it, it doesn't, you know, no one expects that. So that was big. We learned on the packaging that people didn't know what the product was. Our first ever packaging was like mostly all white and it just said like egg white chips in big letters with not a lot of color and no product photo. So people were like, all right, you're telling me it says egg white chips. Like, what does that mean? Let me see it, right? So it, no one knew what to expect and, and that was limiting sales. And then we just learned that the product needed more improvement in terms of uh, texture to get uh, moisture and um, uh, um, I would say mostly moisture and, and a little smoother as well. And so, um, yeah, like tons of learnings across price, product, and packaging. Yeah, it's good that you were able to have that time period to really, really figure out before you did that that major launch. Now, now you just mentioned that you uh, launched on Kickstarter, but you also did you raise a round in addition to the Kickstarter, or was that Kickstarter uh, your first fundraising round? Yeah, we were also fundraising um, at that time. So the Kickstarter was. Um, Yes, we were interested in, you know, getting some fundraising traction, but we also were interested in getting the product out, maybe even more, you know. Um, so we were not relying on it solely to to move forward. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, that ended up going really well. We put a lot of time into preparing and, and into the strategy of like getting enough people to to view the campaign and um, purchase. So ended up being a great campaign. The other piece was that after our market test. Um, our manufacturing was like tiny and we could make a couple hundred bags a day. And so we're like, all right, we're going to improve our product and then we need to manufacture more. So we ran the Kickstarter at a time where we needed like four or five months to scale up our facility. And so that's another part of why we ran it is we couldn't really make product, um, as we were making those scale up tweaks to the facility. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And I know you guys have always... Uh, done it in house. So, so talk to me a little bit about that manufacturing process. Have you guys ever considered a co-packer, uh, and will you ever in the future? Or is it something you want to have uh, complete quality control over all the time? Yeah, I mean, we would definitely be open to going to a co-packer, but every time we've had conversations, and we've had a lot of conversations, um, you know, they just price it way too high because it's a very unique processing method to to make these chips, and so. Co-packers want to do more of what they already do. You know, they don't want to do some new process that all their employees have to learn that involves equipment that they don't yet know. So even when we said, hey, we'll buy the equipment and bring it into your facility, they're still very hesitant and they still kind of, the price quote that gives us reflects, this is going to be a pain in my ass and so I'm going to charge you a lot. And so, you know, maybe when we're larger, even larger than now, in a few years, perhaps it'll be the right fit, but we anticipate that we'll keep making it ourselves for um, the long haul. And how did you guys first figure out how to make them? Was it fooling around in the kitchen or did you need this uh, equipment right away to actually make your product? What, you know, how did, how did you guys do that? Yeah, we um, had some like pretty weird equipment that we ordered at the beginning. Um, and then eventually it got to a place where we kind of needed some machinery that uh, is not stuff that can fit in your kitchen. And we would go to like a test lab of a manufacturer and make batches there. Um, you know, and then we found our, our facility that had, uh, where we could bring in, um, this equipment. So I think overall we tried seven different pieces of like production equipment. Um, 
and you know hundreds and hundreds of ingredients uh, in the recipe. So it was a lot of work in R and D. And did you do this just based off an idea, or was there some MVP there that was like, okay, we we're onto something. Let's let's actually build this out. Yeah, it was interesting. Like, I mean, from the beginning, we had like basic prototype products that were like okay you know like at the business contest we had something and uh but it was always just really lacking so like we knew that everyone would want high protein low carb chip and everyone was super excited about our idea and i think that gave us the energy to keep working on it because we knew if we could get to a place where it tasted pretty good there was going to be huge demand so so the the beauty and the excitement around the concept definitely kept us working on the product itself um over many months and years. And what was that like first egg white chip that you presented at the, the business contest? Like, was that, was that something you didn't have to make a professional equipment? What, what was that like? That one, we had a, a, a pretty cheap, but very weird piece of equipment that we had ordered to our apartment um, at, around in Hyde Park where East Chicago is. So we were able to make that, but only because we, we were using this very, uh, very rare piece of food processing equipment. Um, and then, but eventually we switched away from that to much larger, much more, um, complicated machinery that, you know, we could not make, uh, in our apartment. Yeah. Right. Once, once you actually had it validated and, uh, you know, had some, had some funding behind it. So, so take me, um, take me through what it looks like. You guys do a successful Kickstarter, you do successful fundraise. Um, what's it like then you drop out of school. So, you know, you're, you're all in. What What's the, those next few months look like um, in terms of really uh, experiencing growth with uh, Quavos and getting it out there? Yeah. So then, you know, in August of 2019 is when we fulfilled our Kickstarter. It took us a few months to build up the inventory. Then we sent it all out. And so then we started getting into um, retail and we started with Hannaford, which is like 150. It's an 150 store chain on, on the East Coast. Um, and kind of every few months would build off that. So December, 2019, we got into Heinen's in Ohio, uh, in April, 2020, we got into Whole Foods and then shortly after got into Wegman. So like it kind of just kept building with landing, you know, different stores that were anywhere from 20 to like a hundred, uh, stores, uh, in, in the chain. And then we also had our, our online sales. So we started with our website, um, but eventually, didn't see enough traction and, and decided to go to Amazon. And and what was important for you there? Um, first in terms of like being able to get into retailers, was there any uh, specific things that you learned that helped you, uh, you know, get those relationships and get out there, you know, while still being a, a new entrepreneur and, and, and not knowing all these people? Um, you know, I think that uh, just trying to be like, interesting and um talk to the product was helpful like in my emails i try to put as much interesting information in like four sentences for a retail buyer you know i dropped out of college to bring this product to life you know we're already in this store and that store and selling really well i'd love to send you samples you know just trying to like get their attention sometimes my subject line would be like quavos with two exclamation points and just like whatever i could do to get them to open the email and then like find the content interesting so that's to like get on a call. And then if I'm on a call, you know, just trying to be, I never use retail sales decks. Um, I just kind of like try to talk and have like a human conversation and 
and point towards the product and how new it is because, um, you know, I think that's really your easiest avenue. When you're early, you usually don't have a ton of store data. So you're not going to say, oh, I have 3,000 stores and the product sells amazingly and all of them. You know, you've got to point to what's unique and different and why they should kind of take a bet on you. Yeah, really uh, make it a personal story about you and your product. Uh, I like that. And, and how about how about e-commerce? How did you guys grow uh, online early on? Yeah, with e-commerce, so we started with our website and we tried to just kind of re-engage our Kickstarter followers and that was all right, but we weren't seeing like crazy traction. And then um, we uh, ran a Facebook campaign and that did all right, but it wasn't profitable. So we stopped doing that. And then we kind of gave up on our website and went to Amazon. So we still have our website, but um, Amazon quickly did really big things and, you know, just kind of investing in boring old Amazon search ads. Um, and then starting uh, last spring, you know, we started to do influencer marketing I started it myself and then I, I found you and, and you helped us for a long time. So influencer, uh, helped us grow a lot as well. Yeah. Tell, tell, uh, tell my audience a little bit about that. Kind of what were you, what were you giving to the influencers? Um, what kind of, uh, influencers were you targeting and, and what did you see there? Yeah. So, you know, we did a, a, a bit of a high volume strategy and we still do. And we like to just send people product at first and, kind of, um, if we can avoid paying upfront because, uh, we want to test out the relationship and see if that influencer and their audience actually do have an interest in Quavos before taking a risk, um, 200, $500, you know, for a story or something. So we like to send out a lot of product to a lot of people and then see what sticks and see who's good. And then for the people who end up being really good, um, you know, it's all tracked through their affiliate links and, for the people who end up being good, we try to re-engage them. And based off how much they drove in sales, we know how much we can pay them per post or per story. Um, so it's kind of a method of getting a lot of product out there and then seeing who are the real uh, best advocates and trying to work with them in really close relationships going forward. Yeah, learning by you know seeing what they can do first. And I think you've been able to do so well there because so many people are fascinated when they see your product. Like, whoa an egg white chip. Like I, I have to try that. And, you know, even though it's not the most expensive product, I think a lot of influencers are interested just because it's something uh, so new. Um, now I want to ask you, what is it, what, what was it like those early days being such a young entrepreneur, uh, especially having to go out, you know, talk to investors, talk to the actual stores. Um, did you think that it worked uh, more to your advantage or, or disadvantage in that? I would say overall, I think it worked to our advantage because everyone loved the story of kids dropping out of school and, you know, we're 23 now, but for a lot of our meetings or whatever, we were, you know, 19, 20, 21. And so like, just people would always be like, oh man, when I was your age, like, you know, I was high all the time and like, you know, laziest, like everyone would just think back to themselves and kind of be impressed, I guess, that we were doing this at a young age and so I think that got a lot of people's attention. They almost wanted to root for us. Um, I definitely know Hannaford, that first store that took us, like just loved our story and 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 the product. But it, you know, it gets us an, an unfair level of enthusiasm sometimes from from different partners. So it was really helpful. You know, sometimes we'd meet with an investor who would just not buy into us because we were so young and didn't have experience. But um, you know, and, and also sometimes people will just start giving me advice, even though I don't ask kind of, kind of thinking like, 
oh, they're young. Like, you know, he doesn't know much. Like, let me tell him all this advice. So there's some unsolicited advice too, but uh, overall, I think it's actually been beneficial. Did you have, was there any one person um, who was really helping you out and making sure, you know, that you did all the right things and no one took advantage of you? Um, you know, cause you guys were young and you hadn't done it before. Was there, was there that one person or did you guys just kind of figure it out, um, on your own? Yeah. Um, I think that it was mostly us on our own and then looping in advisors where we weren't sure. So like, um, my dad has helped me probably more than anyone just because I was, I've been living at home for a lot of the time running the business. So I had, you know, hundreds of conversations with him. Um, and then we also have, um, some advisors from the food space as well as, uh, Michael Alter, who's on our board, um, where, you know, typically it's kind of like when I have questions, I'll, I'll go to one of our advisors and they'll help a lot. Um, you know, they're not, uh, it's maybe an hour a week on average from, from some of them, maybe a little less, but so it's kind of, um, I guess I, I got, I think better and better at identifying where am I comfortable to make a decision because I've learned enough and where am I actually lack like on other decisions, where am I lacking information and lacking confidence and really need to run this by some people. Yeah. And I bet it's, it's also reassuring just to know that, that you have that guidance, even if now um, you're at a point where you can uh, really make all those decisions to yourself. Um, cool. Well, I want to, I want to get here to, uh, your Shark Tank episode. Um, before we get into the actual uh, episode itself, um, I want to ask you about kind of the, the before picture. So from when it actually, um, when you guys actually went into interview um, to when it actually aired, how long was that? And, and how secretive did you have to be uh, around that? What did that look like? Yeah. So first there were like four or five months of screening process before we even got to go into the tank. So that was a lot. And then, um, you know, the taping was last summer and then, you know, we taped, we were so excited cause it went really well, but then we couldn't really tell anyone, um, until it aired and they don't tell you very far in advance. You get like an email three weeks in advance of when your episode is going to actually be on TV. So we were waiting for four months until we got that notice, which was nerve wracking cause we were building up all this inventory because we knew our episode would come eventually, but not everything that tapes ends up airing. So you do have to take a little bit of a risk if your inventory isn't something you can just order in like a week. So definitely a crazy process and a very, very long process overall. That's crazy. I didn't realize that. So they don't actually tell you 100% whether it airs. They give you three weeks of notice before like the, potentially the biggest moment for your company. Um, yeah, <laughs> three weeks of notice and it's kind of crazy, but I guess that they put the season together. I got to assume they put things together a little more last minute. Like it's not something where they have all 24 episodes of the season ready, you know, at the start of the season. I wonder if there's any crazy horror stories where someone just goes out, gets all this inventory in preparation and then they just never air it. That's I'm sure that has happened. It must have happened because so many products you can't just like, order them, you know, and have them, uh, in your warehouse in, in a week or two, like almost every product has a longer lead time than that. Yeah. That's, that's nuts. And I, wow, I, I totally didn't realize that. Um, how, how sworn to secrecy were you there? Um, I know that they don't want everyone knowing about what happens beforehand, but obviously there's some people you pretty much have to tell. 
Yeah, you know, what they said is you, you, you tell everyone at your company or, you know, among your investors who needs to know. So, you know, that was a handful of people. And then they said, just really try to tell no one else. Like, they didn't say try. They said, don't tell anyone else. So don't tell, you know, cousins, don't tell friends. And, um, you know, there were probably a few people that I told, you know, close friends that didn't need to know, but I just couldn't resist. So, but yeah, you're really supposed to not tell anyone unless they need to know for, for preparing, for sharing. Yeah, that, that must have been so tough. I can't imagine. I, don't, I feel like I, I would have, if it was me, I would have spilled it. I, I want to know, what, what was it actually like? Like, I feel like every entrepreneur grows up dreaming of being on Shark Tank. What's it like when you're actually on stage there? Um, is there anything different uh, that you maybe can't tell uh, when you're watching on TV about actually being on the tank? Yeah, it, it, it does feel a lot different. Like, I would imagine that if you go on a game show with an audience, you know, you feel that energy from the audience and um, it feels like a party or feels like an event, you know, like, and so even though the episode, when you watch it, has a lot of drama and music and whatever, when you actually are there, it's a lot more, I don't know, like tamped down, right? Because there's no music, there's no sound. So it's like, you walk down the hall, silence. Like you get there and you kind of like get positioned for a few seconds, total silence. Like between when you talk and the sharks talk, absolute dead quiet because you know, everyone's mic'd up. So they want to get perfect sound. Like why would there be any background sound? So I, that makes sense, but I didn't anticipate that. Like I always imagined the music would be there or something like that. So it was, um, that was a little spooky, uh, for, for me, it felt like, um, a very staged dinner party, you know, cause it was me and Zach and five other people. So like it's a small group. Um, and it's just a very, I guess, uh, it's, it's not a situation you ever face in real life. So it just felt very odd. And of course, very, very nerve wracking. Yeah. Was, were you nervous the whole time? Like I watched the episode and you, you really didn't look it was, did it just kind of, once you started, it was like natural because you've done this so many times or were you really just absolutely nervous the, the entire time while you're pitching that? <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, certainly at the beginning, super, super nervous. And you know, when I get to a certain level of nerves, I kind of check out like, and I've heard a lot of other people say this, like you can feel like you're out of your body or you're like watching yourself talk. And so that definitely happens. So like, I think that's part of why I don't look nervous is that like, um, I don't know, those, those nerves were not fully being processed consciously because it was just overload. Like at times where I did feel my body or my heart, like my body was going nuts. There was so much adrenaline and um, my heart was racing. But at the same time, I think like, yeah, there was some part of me that, that checked out a little bit and just kind of got through it. So I'm glad we didn't come off nervous, but <laughs> certainly there were a lot of, of nerves there and it got better. Like it was definitely better, you know, 10 minutes in than right at the beginning. But I don't think there was any point where I was, I would say I was like comfortable, like, you know, like I am now or like, like I am in, you know, normal interactions. Do you think those uh, chicken suits helped or hurt in terms of you being nervous when you were up there? <laughs> <laughs> I think they helped actually. And that, that's what Zach and I were aiming for is like, we both know that in a business meeting, we could both be kind of like serious or um, just not crack any jokes or anything. So we wanted the chicken suits there to like bring some, some automatic lightness to it. And, and I think they did help. I think it really helps with like your social media presence too. It's, it's great, you know, to, to throw that around on social media, you guys in those chicken suits promoting your uh, egg white chip. Um, 
So I have another question. I've been, I've been, I was curious about this when I was watching it. So they let you leave the tank, uh, and you can't. You had two offers at the time. Uh, one, which I thought was a really good offer from Daniel Rebetsky, and one which actually wasn't as bad as his usual offers from from Mister Wonderful, but was uh, kind of what he, what he likes to do with those licensing deals. I was really surprised that you had a counter offer for both of them that you wanted to get out there. Uh, can you tell me what the counter offer uh, to Mister Wonderful that you didn't actually say on air was? Yeah. Yeah. So they did let us go back in the hall. They don't show it in the episode, but we had like five minutes to strategize. And so what we said is let's prepare our offer for Daniel. And then like, if it doesn't work out with Daniel, this is what we would say with Kevin. And, um, you know, what ended up happening is that, uh, we were about to share our, uh, Daniel didn't immediately agree to what we said. And so then Zach was like, Hey, Kevin, can we share ours with you? And Daniel, would that be okay? And Daniel was like, no, I don't think you should do that. Like, and then I said to Zach, Hey, like, we can't make two deals. Like if we talk to Kevin, he says, yes, then we lose Daniel. And we really wanted Daniel. Yeah. Um, our, our offer to Kevin was going to be, uh, so he had said 200,000, uh, of investment with some sort of royalty where once he gets back 400,000, then it's over. And that's for two and a half percent. What we were going to counter with was, 200k of investment with the royalty until he just gets the investment back so he gets 200 back and then he just keeps this two and a half percent so um you know it would have been a loan that like um over time just gets recouped and he would have had a little chunk but it wouldn't have been too bad i don't think yeah that that would be a pretty good deal as far as like uh kevin o'leary deals are concerned um yeah exactly I'd love to ask you what is what does that relationship actually look like once a deal is put in place and what was that what was that due diligence like I've heard of a lot of deals that fall apart and they don't show this on Shark Tank um, but the, you know it doesn't actually go through what what did that look like for you guys Yeah um, the diligence took a long time we negotiated for a while about the specific terms of the deal probably for about twelve weeks and then closed the deal and. Um, you know, then we've been working with Daniel and his team and that's been, been great, but it is, um, there's a lot that goes into it. I've heard the, the quickest I've heard for a deal signing is two months, you know, maybe some are faster, but you know, it's like any big deal. There's going to be a lot of diligence from the investor and a lot of negotiation on, on the terms. So that handshake, or I guess you guys didn't do one because of, uh, of COVID, but that deal that's put together in the, whatever it is, an hour that you're on, Shark Tank. That's that's not set in stone. You you actually re- you start the process of of a deal after after that. Yes, you know you start from the basics of what you agreed to on the show, certainly, and those terms can change. But you know you you couldn't if you said made a deal for two hundred k for ten percent, you couldn't go to your shark and say, hey, actually, what about five hundred k for ten percent? Like you have to use that what you said as like your basis, but it can move around a little bit from there, and then. You know, then there's all sorts of terms about do they have rights to keep their stake and not get diluted, and do they have rights to be on the board and make decisions. So, like, there's a lot of negotiation on their specific involvement and and their rights and privileges. And so, you said you guys have to stick to, um, you know, what you said. But do the sharks always have to stick to that, or do they sometimes waver away when they're like, oh, maybe I gave them too good of a deal on the show? Yeah. Um. I mean, I I think the sharks can definitely you know, it, both parties can move things around a little bit. I think like it would just be considered very 
bad form. Like if the entrepreneur came and wanted to like totally redo it, but obviously if you're on a call with them and this happened with us, like things did move around slightly. Cause when you're on a call and you float different ideas, they might accept that. Um, but I just think like, you know, what they tell you in Shark Tank is don't accept a deal. You're not actually willing to sign on after the show is done. Of course, not just for the publicity or maybe, maybe they'll cut some of the people that actually do that. Um, yeah, totally. What was the immediate post Shark Tank, you know, frenzy like for your company? Like right after that airs, what, did, what, what does that look like for Quibos? Yeah, um, it was crazy. <laughs> um, we did, you know, within two weeks, about half of 2020 um, and, and in online sales. So that was crazy. And just the, the couple of days after, like, you know, I've never run on adrenaline for more than like a day. And I definitely had a full week where like the next morning after the show, I went to our facility at 6 a.m. till like 5 p.m. to help everyone fulfill the packages. And then that whole week was like a scramble to get the packages out. So Plus a lot of people were emailing us and interested in different partnerships and there were some press opportunities. So the first week was nuts and then every week calmed down a little bit, but like definitely for three or four weeks, I felt the busiest and most stressed I ever have. But it was also kind of fun because there was a lot of excitement. So in terms of like, besides the actual sales, which, you know, skyrocketed your company, it sounds like if you did half of 2020 right after what was, what would you say is the biggest thing that came into place? You said you got partnership emails. Uh, I know you got a bunch of media pieces. What, what do you think is the biggest thing that happened for you guys? Yeah. Um, I would say just the general like growth in everywhere we were. So, um, you know, our stores are selling like two to three X what they were previously per store and online we're doing two X what we previously were on a daily average. So we just got to double our business kind of, for free. I mean, obviously it was a lot of work to go and, and go on Shark Tank and everything, but you know, without spending on marketing, everything just kind of doubled, which was very, very, you know, we're very <laughs> grateful that, that we just got that for free. And, and what has Daniel been like to work with? How, how much of his time uh, do you actually get? Uh, and you know, what, what exactly do the sharks do besides the actual investment? Yeah. Um, so Daniel's been great. Like uh, I think now he's probably, as attentive as he ever will be to us just because the episode was, was recent. Um, but he replies to all my emails when I want help with something. We have a call, you know, at least every quarter, sometimes more often. And, um, yeah, you know, they help with everything from Daniel's made a lot of intros to brokers or retailers to try to gain more distribution. He's helping a lot with our packaging redesign, um, which should be done in the next like month or two. And, um, he's also got a whole team that can answer like more day-to-day questions. You know, we have right now an ingredient or also uses that ingredient. So I'm going to get on the phone with kind bars, um, you know, head of procurement and talk about the strategy for, for this ingredient and the, su- the supply. So like all those little questions, they have a lot of people that can help too. Is there any, uh, retailers? Cause I mean, kind bars are, are literally everywhere. Um, that he has a relationship with that would maybe be your, your dream retailer to get in like, like that he, he could potentially help with down the road. Yeah. He does have a lot of great relationships. I think that it's, you know, so far it's been, he sent some introductions and we've had meetings and like, it just gets our foot in the door in a really nice way. And they'll take the meeting. Like, mm-hmm. um, I don't know if he has anywhere he can literally, he's, where he's the gatekeeper and like can just get you in. But 
it's kind of like, it's an introduction that they pay attention to and it helps to almost every time to get that meeting and, and kind of get their ears perked. So, um, you know, I think it'll just be to continue to be helpful because so far every store I've asked for, he's known someone or known the right broker to help approach that store. So it's definitely huge. Yeah. They, they pick up your calls now. Cool. And yeah, I, I'd love to know what, you know, where do you see this headed in terms of like the retail game? Where, where do you think, um, you know, Quavos could be in if all goes right within the next couple of years? You know, I think we kind of want to keep getting into larger and larger stores. So places like uh, Target, Publix, Kroger, and eventually Costco and Walmart. And, you know, if you can get three to five of those biggest stores in the country, your brand explodes. And it also is an explosion for e-commerce because people find it in the store and they buy it online. So, um, you know, I, I, our hope is that within five years, we're in a position where a food company or a private equity firm, you know, values the business enough to, to acquire us. Um, but, uh, we'll see, we got to just kind of keep hitting the growth we have. And, and I think we'll be good if we can keep this pace. Yeah. Makes sense. And I, I don't know. I've also, I've always seen you guys as a, as a good fit for Trader Joe's too. I mean, maybe this is because I love Trader Joe's, but yes, actually we have sent samples to them and they're interested. They wanted us to make a couple, um, tweaks and, and we're sending them samples again, uh, probably later in this quarter. So that would be a great one. I would even do that private label, you know, cause they don't take a lot of brands with their own brand, but, um, Trader Joe's is an amazing, uh, store and they're actually great to work with too. I've heard. Yeah, I've heard that too. That would be so cool. I, I would be really excited for you guys if you got in there. It seems like a perfect fit. Um, I want to take a little bit about uh, your actual flavors there. So you have a wide variety of, of different unique flavors. You have dill pickle, sour cream and onion, honey mustard. Uh, which of them is your favorite? Yeah, um, I'd say honey mustard is my new favorite and because we just launched that one recently and it's very good. I also love sour cream and pickle equally, I'd say, as number two. So they're all pretty good, though. I'm disappointed. I haven't gone to try honey mustard yet, but dill pickle was my all-time favorite. Uh, yeah. is, are there any uh, future flavors that you can tell us about, or are these is this confidential? Um, no, I can, I can mention. So cheddar is like getting a facelift and becoming a keto flavor because it wasn't keto before for us. So that's relaunching in June. And then we're probably going to launch a plain sea salt. Like we don't have that like original or sea salt flavor. And so our chip itself is a little bit bland. So I'm not sure it's going to work, but it's something we're, we're working on because most snack companies sell the most of, of, of a sea salt flavor. Yeah, I think that's that's a really good idea. That's kind of the one one core one you're missing. What, what about ketchup? Is that... Is that- <laughs> that hasn't been uh, put on our radar yet, but th- that is a good idea. It'd be cool. Uh, and are you guys 100% focused on egg white chips um, for like the immediate feature, uh, future? Or are there any additional kind of Quavos products that aren't necessarily your core product line now that, that you have in mind to build? Yeah. Um, you know, we want to do other like high protein snacks made from egg whites. So things like puffs and protein cookies. Like, And there's probably even places we can play in refrigerated, like with egg bites that, that have been coming out recently. Um, that you just microwave. So there's a lot we want to do, but I, what I've learned from brands like Skinny Pop and RX Bar is that um, things are easier if you can stick to one product line, you know, across a bunch of flavors and a couple different pack sizes. And it just simplifies things. If you can keep growing and growing with just that, 
it's simpler, more efficient. And then, you know, uh, someone that comes to acquire you like Kraft Heinz is going to get really excited because they're going to say, oh, you've only done chips and I can buy you and we can do three other product lines in different categories. So we will launch other things, but I think we're going to see how much room the chips have to grow on their own first. That makes sense. So you want to be big enough or get acquired before you do other things, but you've already have uh, a number of product lines in mind that, that you would uh, launch if given the opportunity. Yes, exactly. Cool. Um, so I, you know, we've talked a lot about kind of your successes and how you guys grew. Uh, obviously with any business, there's always struggles going in. Do you have anything, um, that, you know, really hits you hard and maybe, maybe you would do over if you had a chance or just kind of a, a failure that you, you learned from along the way building Quavos? Yeah, I, I think like, you know, personally, the biggest mistake I've made is I, I had two friends, close, close friends that were on the team early and, uh, they, you know, we didn't love their performance. And so we ended up, I ended up firing them and did it in a way that was very sudden. And I think I hadn't given enough negative feedback and enough warnings because it's so hard to give negative feedback to your friends. And so it really, you know, it hurt those relationships a lot versus, what I've learned now as a manager is just communicate, 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 and be open with how people are doing so that there's never any surprises. Um, very basic lesson in management, but uh, had to learn it uh, in a very difficult way. Yeah. And a lot of people say, don't get into business with your friends because of, for that very reason. Um, so yeah, that must've been tough. And I know, you know, both you and I started businesses with uh, close friends of ours. So it's, it's kind of tough to, you know, differentiate the, the business partnership versus uh, the friendship there. Yes, totally. And another thing I'd say is when uh, Zach is no longer full-time, but when Zach was full-time and we were, we lived two minutes from each other for a year working full-time on this and we definitely did not have enough fun. Like it was all about Quavos. Um, and so like, I definitely, you know, there's husband and wives that start businesses together and I just hope that they kind of say, okay, it's 8 p.m., we're done with business. Let's hang out. Let's watch a movie. Let's talk about nothing. Like it's very important to keep that, the friendship piece going too. Absolutely. Do you guys, do you and Zach do that now? Do you still, do you have a, you know, 8 PM, you turn it off and you watch a movie or something? Yeah. I mean, well now, you know, he doesn't live as close anymore and is back in school. So yeah, when we hang out now, it's more hanging out. We will talk about the business, but it's also, more fun to talk business because we, when he was full-time, we were co-CEOs. And so there was some stress of like, if we disagreed, you know, ultimately we kind of had to agree to make a decision uh, versus now it's like, we throw a lot of ideas around, but he doesn't ever say, oh, you have to do this. Cause he knows like, you know, I'm the CEO full-time and he's back at school. So it's definitely more fun. I'd say when we do talk business, cause there's no, there's no tension anymore. And was there, was there any big disagreements there um, that you guys had? And, and, and what, what's the tiebreaker if you guys are like co-CEOs, 50-50 split? Like how, does, how does that work? Yeah. Well, it's an interesting thing because, um, you know, we when we were both full-time, we really had no solution if we did have a disagreement. And so it never got terrible. But there were some things of like, I wanted to launch a little sample pack. And Zach's like, well, we're not going to make as much money. And you know, like, and so we ended up going his way just because I couldn't like bring enough reasons to like overtake some of his counter arguments. And, but, you know, we just spent like eight hours discussing that and going back and forth. And, um, so there was nothing terrible, but there were a couple of times where it's just like, 
all right, if one person can't like bring up a ton of energy and a ton of great reasons, we just like wouldn't do something because we wouldn't both get on that page. You know, I, as soon as you can, I think in a business with two founders like that, you should get a board with three, which we have now. We brought on this guy, Michael. And so now like two people are going to have a majority for a decision if there's ever a disagreement. Yeah, I think that's that's a, a good solution. Um, so, so the majority of your growth has been over uh, the course of the pandemic, which has obviously uh, hit your industry pretty hard in a lot of ways. Uh, what, what kind of impact would you say uh, COVID-19 has had on Quavos? Yeah, um, I would say like it hasn't changed things a lot and we're very grateful for that. You know, if anything, maybe we focused online a little bit more than we would have. Um, we started doing influencer shortly after the pandemic started and that was very effective. And so, yeah, it's probably been harder to get into retail um, since the pandemic. Uh, a lot of stores for like a year weren't really taking new products. Um, but overall, we've been lucky just that, you know, food on Amazon and in grocery stores um, was impacted a lot less than like restaurants or food sold in restaurants or convenience stores. So we're lucky we didn't have a big deal with Starbucks or Subway, right? Like those would have all gotten uh, hit really hard for four to six months. So we just uh, are grateful to be in this category of the food industry. Yeah, makes sense. And and we you touched on this a little bit in some of your other answers, but I'd love to kind of hear uh, a timeline uh, that you have in mind here. Where, where do you envision uh, the future of Quavos? Maybe one year, five years, and, and 10 years, if there is a 10 years uh, down the line. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I think in one year, I'm hoping that we get like one or two major retailers involved. And it might not be nationally, but I'm hoping to get like Target in the Midwest or Kroger, you know, in the Northeast or kind of to just start to build with some of those really big chains. Um, in five years, we would hope that we're in, I'd say like, you know, Target, Kroger, Publix and Costco or Walmart. And then in 10 years, you hope to kind of just be in every retailer in the country pretty much besides maybe ones that are really, really like about, like Dollar General, we might never be in there, you know, but, um, uh, and international too. By 10 years from now, I hope that we're in a lot of, um, Latin American markets, Europe, um, China, India. And so, um, we'll see, uh, international is exciting, but also very, very complex, but, uh, that's kind of the roadmap. Eventually you want to be everywhere. Definitely. Is there, uh, you know, is acquisition, something that you hope to have someday? Yes. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd say by like around a five-year time and maybe a little bit sooner, but just all depends on how quickly we can grow as well as grow in a sustainable way so that an acquirer is like, all right, you're actually generating money and um, you know, can the business can fund itself. So we do want to be cautious. There's some brands that like grow while losing money, but they just keep raising huge sums and um, trying to avoid that path because sometimes acquirers get scared if you're not actually profitable. Makes sense. And, uh, can you throw out a, a dream, uh, acquirer? Who, who would that be? I think Kraft Heinz, you know, we were in Kraft Heinz's incubator and we already have a relationship. So I think it'd be really cool to go from, you know, help, having them help us start with a 50 K investment and their incubator program before we sold a single bag to, you know, ending up, with an acquisition with them. So that, that'd be my goal. 
Yeah, and it'd be a cool story. Kind of come full circle like that. Awesome. Well, I that is it for the questions related to Quavos. I do want to get to what we call uh, the quick fire round here. So I'm going to ask you some questions. Uh, and can you do your best to answer each of them in uh, 30 seconds or less? Sure, I'll try. All right, so do you have any morning rituals that you do to kickstart your day? I do. Uh, I meditate every morning for between 30 minutes to an hour. Whose content do you listen to, watch, or read the most? Um... Sam Harris and his Making Sense podcast. He also has a meditation app that I use. So um, just find him to be a very deep thinker as well as someone with a lot of great uh, tips for life. What is your favorite book of all time? I would say a book called Wherever You Go, There You Are, which is also about meditation. Um, You might be sensing a theme, uh, but uh, I found that book to be just, you know, I can read it again and again and like pick up any place in it for five minutes and it's very inspirational. How many times do you think you've read that book then? Uh, honestly, I don't even know that I've read it cover to cover. <laughs> just, it's like, I'll just do different chapters at different times and I'm uh, sure I've covered most of it by now, but um, just every line I read, I love. And what is your favorite purchase of $100 or less? That's a great question. I would say some sort of food item. Um, I'd probably say like cookie butter. I don't know if you've tried this, but there's this product, Trader Joe's sells it. It's just like peanut butter consistency, but it tastes like cookies and I love that stuff. That sounds good. I got to try that. Um, Where is your favorite place you've ever been to? Gosh, um, I would say probably the old city in Jerusalem in Israel. Like just feels like history when you're there. Like there's an amazing uh, vibe to that area. I really want to go. I wanted to do that for birthright, but I'm, I'm running out of time now, but uh, yeah, you gotta, you gotta get out there. I definitely do. Uh, what is your favorite shark tank brand that isn't Quavos? I don't know if it's my favorite, but I envy them the most. And that is um, the, the comfy, the oversized sweatshirt thing that like, they got up to 150 million in sales within two years of being on Shark Tank. I don't know. Yeah. Who is the entrepreneur you look up to most? And you can't say uh, Dan. <laughs> fair, fair enough. I would say Blake Mikowski. He was actually another guest shark this season um, on Shark Tank, but he started Tom's, which is a shoe brand that like get, donates one pair for every pair they sell. I thought that was cool. And then now, um, he has a company called made for that's like a 10 month program of different healthy habits. And you do like one a month. And so I just like how he seems to be living to his values and kind of now working on products that are all about, um, you know, his vision for like beneficial things to work on in life. And, um, doesn't seem like it's about the money for him, which I think is cool. Yeah. And I think he, he's at least credited with kind of creating that, that model of like donate for everything sold. Uh, which a lot of people use today. Yeah, totally. uh, my question here is, what advice would you give to someone looking to build their own influence, whether that is in the business or influence or world? I mean, I would, I would probably say like, if it's in the influence world, like I hope that you have something that's actually beneficial, you know, for people. And it could just be funny, but like, um, 
I don't think you should do that for the sake of influence. Like, I think that's a pretty empty pursuit. And the same thing in business. Like, I would say, like, if you have a product that's that's really helping people um, or fixing a need, like, kind of pursue that. Um, obviously, there are things you can do um, that maybe are neutral <laughs> that are also great businesses. But yeah, I would, I would say in both cases, like, find something that is beneficial to people in some way. And if there's that need or that attraction uh, people will be interested. Find something that actually helps people. That's good advice. Uh, well, thank you so much for coming on, Nick. I think, um, you know, from starting a Japanese soda business from a young age um, to, you know, dropping out of school to pursue this full time and then pitching on Shark Tank and getting a deal there. I think a lot of people who are listening to this can really learn from your journey uh, and be inspired. So I really appreciate you sharing uh, your story with all of us. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Aaron. It was great working with you, you know, last year and um, great to be on the podcast. And I'm, I'm sure it'll continue to grow because I think your questions uh, are, are fantastic. And that was Hunting Influence. To find out more about Influence Hunter and how we source micro and nano influencers to exponentially grow the reach of your brand, visit InfluenceHunter.com. And then make sure to search for Hunting Influence in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else podcasts are found and click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Influence Hunter, thanks for listening.